0: Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Charlie Seringo, born in 1855 in Matagorda County, Texas, lived a pretty full and colorful life in the West, and thankfully, he wrote about it. His style of writing is often humorous and straightforward, and I recommend all of his books to fans of the West for good reading. He began his working life as a cowboy, and later worked as a lawman, a Pinkerton detective, a bounty hunter, and an author, and in the future, you can count on us sharing excerpts from some of his books, including today's story, A Texas Cowboy, his other books being A Cowboy Detective, The History of Billy the Kid, and Lone Star Cowboy. Today, we're offering chapters 1 and 20 from A Texas Cowboy, titled My Boyhood Days and Return to the Chisholm Trail, respectively. And now, chapter 1 from A Texas Cowboy, My Boyhood Days, By Charles Seringo. It was a bright morning on the seventh day of February, eighteen fifty six, as near as I can remember, that your humble servant came prancing into this wide and wicked world. By glancing over the map, you'll find my birthplace at the extreme southern part of the Lone Star State on the peninsula of Matagorda, a narrow strip of land bordered by the Gulf of Mexico on the south and Matagorda Bay on the north. This peninsula is from one to two miles wide and seventy five miles long. It connects the mainland at Caney, and comes to a focus at Desgrau's Point, or Salura Pass. About midway between the two was situated the Dutch settlement, and in the center of that settlement, which contained only a dozen houses, stood the little frame cottage that first gave me shelter. My father, who died when I was only a year old, came from the sunny clime of Italy, while my dear old mother drifted from the bogs of good old Ireland. Am I not a queer conglomerate? A sweet-scented mixture, indeed. Our nearest neighbor was a kind old soul by the name of John Williams, whose family consisted of his wife and eleven children. In the fall of 1859, I took my first lessons in school, my teacher being a Mr. Hale from Illinois. The schoolhouse, a little old frame building, stood off by itself, about a mile from the settlement, and we little towheads, sister and I, had to hoof it up there every morning, through the grass burrs, barefooted. Our little sun browned feet had never been encased in shoe leather up to that time. To avoid the grass burrs, sometimes on getting an early start we would go around by the gulf beach, which was quite a distance out of our way. In taking this route, though, I would generally be late for school, for there were so many little things to detain me, such as trying to catch the shadow of a flying seagull, or trying to lasso sand crabs on my stick horse. Crowds of cowboys used to come over to the peninsula from the mainland and sometimes have occasion to rope wild steers in my presence, hence me trying to imitate them. I remember getting into a scrape once by taking the beach route to school. Sister, who was a year older than I, was walking along the water edge picking up pretty shells while I was riding along on my stick horse taking the kinks out of my rope, a piece of fish line, so as to be ready to take in the first crab that showed itself. "'Those crabs went in large droves "'and sometimes ventured quite a distance out from the gulf, "'but on seeing a person, they'd all break for the water. "'It was not long before I spied a large drove on ahead, "'pulling their freight for the water. "'I put spurs to my pony and dashed after them. "'I managed to get one old fat fellow headed off "'and turned towards the prairie. "'I threw at him several times, "'but he was always go through the loop before I could pull it up. "'He finally struck a hole and disappeared.' I was determined to get him out and take another whirl at him, so dropping my horse and getting down on all fours, I began digging the sand away with my hands, dog fashion. About that time, Sister came up and told me to come on as I would be late for school. I think I told her to please go to Halifax, as I was going to rope that crab before I quit, or bust. At any rate, she went off, leaving me digging with all my might. Every now and then I would play dog by sticking my snoot down the hole to smell. "'but I rammed it down once too often. "'Mr. Crab was nearer the surface than I thought for. "'He was laying for me. "'I gave a Comanche yell, jumped ten feet in the air, "'and lit out for home at a 240 gate. "'One of his claws was fastened to my upper lip "'while the other clamped my nose with an iron-like grip. "'I met Mr. William Burge coming out to the beach "'after a load of wood, "'and he relieved me of my uncomfortable burden. "'He had to break the crab's claws off to get him loose.' I arrived at school just as Mr. Hale was ringing the bell after recess. He called me up and wanted to know what was the matter with my face. It was so bloody. Being a little George W., minus the hatchet, I told him the truth. Suffice to say, he laid me across his knee and made me think a nest of bumblebees were having a dance in the seat of my breeches, or at least where the seat should have been. We were so poor that I had worn nothing but a long white shirt made of a flower sack after some of the big bugs in Matagorda had eaten the flower out. The fall of 1861, Mr. Hale broke up school and left for Yankeedom to join the Bluecoats, and from that time on I had a regular picnic, doing nothing and studying mischief. Billy Williams was my particular chum. We were constantly together doing some kind of devilment. The old women used to say we were the meanest little imps in the settlement, and that we would be hung before we were twenty-one. Our three favorite pastimes were riding the milk calves, coon hunting, and sailing playboats down on the bay shore. Shortly after school broke up, I wore my first pair of breeches. Uncle Nick and Aunt Mary, Mother's brother and sister, who lived in Galveston, sent us a trunk full of clothes, and among them was a pair of white canvas breeches for me. The first Sunday after the goods arrived, Mother made me scour myself all over and try my new pants on. They were large enough for two kids of my size, but Mother said I could wear them that day if I would be a good boy, and that she would take a few tucks in them before the next Sunday so after getting me fixed up she told me not to leave the yard or she would skin me alive. Of course I should have been proud of the new addition to my wardrobe and like a good little boy obeyed my mother, but I wasn't a good little boy and besides the glory of wearing white pants was insignificant compared to that of an exciting coon hunt with dogs through brush, bramble and rushes. You see I had promised Billy the evening before to go coon hunting with him that day. I watched my chance, and while mother was dressing sister in her new frock, I tiptoed out of the house and skipped. Billy was waiting for me with the four dogs, and off we went for the bay shore. Arriving there, the dogs disappeared in the tall rushes barking at every jump. We jumped right in after them, up to our waist in the mud. We had a genuine good all-day coon hunt, killing several coons and one wildcat. We gave up the hunt about sundown, and I started for home, the glory of my new pants having departed. I was indeed a sorry-looking sight, covered with mud from head to foot. I entered the house with some fear and trembling, and well I might, for Mother was laying for me with the old black strap. The result was I slept sound that night, but couldn't sit down without pain for a week afterwards. It was Monday morning, a day that I despised. Need you wonder, for it was mother's wash day and I had to carry wood from the gulf beach to keep the pot boiling. I tried to play off sick that morning, but it would not work, for mother had noticed that I got away with two plates of mush besides three hard boiled eggs for breakfast. Before starting out after my first load of wood, I hid the big old strap which hung by the door, for I felt in my bones there was war in the air. I always did have a tough time of it on wash days, and I knew this Monday would bring the same old story. At last, Mother got the fire started under the washpot which stood out in the yard and told me for about the twentieth time to go after an armful of wood. I hesitated in hopes that she would take a notion to go herself, but when she stamped her foot and picked up a barrel stave, I knew I'd better be going, for when she got her Irish blood up, it was dangerous to linger. When I got out among the driftwood on the beach, I treed a cottontail rabbit up a hollow log and made up my mind to get Mr. Cottontail out, wood or no wood. I began digging the sand away from the log as fast as I could so to be able to roll it down into the gulf and drown the rabbit out. It was a very hot day, and digging the heavy sand with only my hands and a stick was slow, tiresome work. The result was I fell asleep with my head under the log and my bare legs sticking out in the hot June sun. I dreamt I died and went to a dreadful hot country, and Satan was there piling hot coals on me. Finally, the sun went under a cloud. Or at least I supposed it did, for the burning pain left me and I began to dream of heaven. I thought the Lord was there sitting upon his throne of gold in the midst of scores of happy children. Calling me up to him, he pointed to a large pile of fence rails down in the beautiful valley and said, "'My boy, you go down and carry every one of those rails up here to me before you stop.' His words landed up against my happy thoughts like a thunderbolt from a clear sky. I'd been thinking of what a picnic I would have with the other children.' "'A walk of about one mile brought me to the pile of rails. "'There were more in the pile than I could count. "'I shouldered one of the lightest and struck out up the steep hill, "'thinking how I would like to be back with Mother, "'even if I had to carry an armful of wood from the beach now and then, "'when about halfway up the hill I heard a terrible noise "'such as I'd never heard before. "'It awakened me, and in trying to jump up, "'I bumped my head against a log "'and also filled my eyes full of sand. "'When I got onto my feet and the sand out of my eyes,' I discovered the whole beach, east of me, thronged with men carrying guns, and marching right towards me. The head ones were not over a hundred yards off, beating drums and blowing their horns. It is needless to say I was scared, and that I ran as fast as my legs could carry me, looking back every minute to see if they were after me. It was in this way that I ran, or sprang, right into the midst of Mrs. Zeprian's drove of geese, before I knew it. There were several old ganders in the drove, which used to chase me every chance they got. I generally took particular pains to go around them, but this time my mind was in a different channel from what it had been in before, hence my not looking out for them. As I flew past, two of the old ganders made a dive at me, but only one succeeded in catching on. He grabbed the tail of my shirt, which stuck straight out behind, in his mouth, and hung on with blood in his eyes. My speed seemed to increase instead of slacken. Every time the old gander would bounce up and come down, his claws would rake the skin from the calves of my legs. His death-like grip finally broke loose, and I felt considerably lighter. My mind also felt somewhat relieved. mother was out in the yard washing. She had picked up chips enough to boil the water. The tub was sitting upon a box, and she was rubbing away with all her might her back towards me. As I was looking over my shoulder, I ran against her, knocking her, tub and all, over in a pile, myself with them. Mother got up first with her right hand in my shirt collar. I pled manfully and tried to tell her about the scores of men, but she was too mad to listen. She dragged me to where the big black strap should have hung. I knew she couldn't find it, therefore hoped to get off with a few slaps. But alas, nope, she spied the mush stick, and the way she gave it to me with that was a caution. The crowd I saw proved to be doctor Pearson's company of rebels, who had been sent over from Matagorda to drill and be ready to fight the Bluecoats when they came. It was then the summer of 1862. They located their camp on the beach, about a mile from our house, and I used to march with them all day long sometimes. The captain, Dr. Pearson, gave me an umbrella stick which I used for a gun. That coming fall, about 5,000 Yankees landed at Deckrose Point on the peninsula and marched by our ranch on their way to the rebel camp, which was stationed 40 miles above at the mouth of Caney Creek. They camped one night close to our house and filled me up with hardtack, which was quite a treat to a fellow living on mush and milk. They had a five- or six-day fight with the rebels, neither of them coming off victorious. We could hear the guns plainly from the settlement. Many dead men were washed ashore on the beach, my sister and I stumbled onto one poor fellow one day, shot through the heart. His clothes were gone, and his wrist was marked J.T. in India, Inc. After the battle, the Yankees marched back to Deckrose Point where they remained to the end of the war. The rebels still held their ground at the mouth of Caney. Every now and then a squad from each side would meet at the settlement and have a skirmish. I remember once after one of those skirmishes a crowd of Yankees rounded Mr. Williams up on the prairie, Billy and I being with him and throwing their pistols in his face, told him if they ever found him so far from home again, they would kill him. Their threats didn't scare Mr. Williams the least bit, for he afterwards slipped into their camp after dark and stole eleven head of their best horses and gave them to the rebels. But on his way back from the rebel camp, where he went to take the horses, they caught him and took him aboard of a Yankee man-of-war to hang him. They had the rope around his neck ready to swing him when the general turned him loose on account of his old age and bravery. Telling them never to be caught from home again. Fighting was going on nearly every day in sight of us. Sometimes the Yankee gunboats would get into the bay among the rebel boats, and at other times they would fight across the narrow strip of land, shooting right over the houses at one another. Many of the cannonballs dropped on the prairie. One of them at one time struck within a few feet of Mr. Williams, almost burying him in the sand as he plowed along on the ground. Poor fellow, he was afterwards killed by one. He carried one home. And taking all the powder out of it, as he supposed, set it out in the yard with the hole up, then told Billy to get him a coal of fire in the tongs. He thought it would just flash a little. I was there, and not liking the looks of it, crept out behind the picket gate a few yards away and peeped between the pickets. The whole family was looking on to see the fun. Maddie, one of the little girls, was sitting with her arms around a dog's neck, within a few feet of it. Billy, arriving with the coal, handed it to his father, who reached over and let it drop down into the hole, where he had taken out the lead screw. It seemed to me that the coal hadn't reached the hole when the thing exploded. For a few seconds everything was enveloped in smoke. When the smoke disappeared sufficiently for me to see, the whole sky seemed to be a blaze of fire, and finally Mr. Williams emerged out of the heavy cloud of smoke, hopping on one leg. A piece of the bombshell had taken off part of one foot on the left leg, and another piece had plowed through the calf of his right leg. Part of one ear was also gone. He only lived a few days after that. A piece of the shell took off one of the dog's legs without even touching Maddie, the little girl who had her arms around his neck. Several pieces went through the house, and one piece went through the picket gate right over my head. The next day Billy and I found a large piece sticking in the wall of an old vacant house a mile from where it exploded. During the war, several ships were driven ashore on the beach by the Yankee gunboats. The folks at the settlement would get all the plunder. One ship was loaded with dry goods, and from that time on, I wore good breeches. About a year after the war broke out, the rebels gathered up all the cattle on the peninsula and drove them to the mainland, where they were turned loose with the thousands upon thousands of wild cattle already over there. Their idea in doing so is to keep the Yankees, whom they knew would hold the lower part of the peninsula, they having the best gunboats. "'from getting fresh beef to eat. "'There was only one cow left in the whole settlement, "'and that was our old Brownie. "'Mother had begged manfully for them to leave her, "'for she knew we children would starve to death "'living on mush straight. "'When the war broke up, everybody was happy. "'We cheered for joy when Mr. Joe Yeamans "'brought the good news from town. Shortly after this, all of the men and boys "'that were large enough went over to the mainland "'to gather up the peninsula cattle.' On their arrival, they found it a bigger job than they'd figured on, for they were scattered over two or three hundred miles of country and as wild as deer. Billy and I thought it very hard that we could not go and be cowboys too, but we had lots of fun all by ourselves, for we had an old mule and two or three ponies to ride. So you see, we practiced riding in anticipation of the near future, when we would be large enough to be cowboys. After being gone about three months, the crowd came back, bringing with them several hundred head of cattle, which they had succeeded in gathering. Among them were about twenty head belonging to Mother. The crowd went right back after more. This stimulated Billy and I to become a crowd of cowboys all by ourselves. Therefore, we put in most of our time lassoing and riding wild yearlings, etc. We hardly stayed at home long enough to get our meals. Mother had to get her own wood in those days, for sister had gone to school in Galveston. Of course, I always had to come home at night. Therefore, Mother would get satisfaction out of me with a black strap or mush stick after I was snugly settled in bed, for my waywardness and trifling habits. In the spring of 1867, a cattleman by the name of Faldian brought his family over to the peninsula for their health and rented part of our house to live in. After getting his wife and babies located in their new quarters, he started back home in Matagorda to make preparations for spring work, he having to rig up new outfits. He persuaded Mother to let me go with him and to learn to run cattle. When she consented, I was the happiest boy in the settlement, for my lifelong wish was about to be gratified. We'll return with Chapter 20. Return to the Chisholm Trail, right after these sponsor messages.
1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: And now Chapter 20. Another start up the Chisholm Trail. I hadn't been at home but a few days when I came very near getting killed by a falling house. Mother had become tired of the neighborhood she lived in and wanted me to move her and her shanty down the creek about a mile to Mr. Cornelius's. "'so hiring a yoke of oxen, "'although a pair of goats would have answered the purpose, "'I hauled her household goods down to the spot selected. "'I then went to work tearing the shanty down. "'In building it, I had set eight pine posts two feet in the ground, "'and then nailed the sidings to them. "'There was only one room, and it was eight feet wide and fourteen feet long. "'The roof had been made of heavy pine boards. "'After tearing both ends out, I climbed onto the roof to undo that. "'I was a straddle of the sharp roof about midway, Axe in one hand and large chisel in the other, "'when all at once the sides began spreading out atop. "'Of course I began sinking slowly, but surely, "'until everything went down in a crash. "'The pine post had become rotten from the top of the ground down, "'and just as soon as the roof and I had struck the bottom, "'the sides flopped over onto us. "'A neighbor's little boy by the name of Benny Williams "'had been monkeying around watching me work, "'and unluckily he was inside of the shanty when the collapse came.' I was sensible, but unable to move, there being so much weight on me. Finally, little Benny, who was one thickness of boards under me, woke up and began squalling like a six-month-old calf being put through the process of branding. After squalling himself hoarse, he began to moan most piteously. That was too much for me. I could stand his bleeding, but his moaning for help put new life into my lazy muscles, causing me to exert every nerve in my body so as to get out and render the poor boy assistance. I had, before the boys' cries disturbed me, made up my mind to lie still and wait for something to turn up. In exerting myself, I found that I could move my body down towards my feet, an inch at a time. The weight was all on my left shoulder, but it soon came in contact with something else, which relieved my bruised shoulder of most of the weight. I got out finally after a long and painful struggle, and securing help from the Morris Ranch, fished Benny out. He had one leg broken below the knee, besides other bruises. "'I was slightly disfigured, but still in the ring. "'I put in the winter visiting friends, hunting, etc. "'I had sold my cattle, the Mavericks branded nearly four years before, "'to Mr. George Hamilton at the market price from five to ten dollars a head, "'according to quality, to be paid for when he got his own brand put on them. "'Every now and then he would brand a few, and with the money received for them, "'I would buy grub and keep up my dignity.' About the first of March, I received a letter from Mr. Rosencrans, one of D.T. Beals' partners, stating that Mr. Beals had bought his cattle in Middle Texas instead of Southern, as he had expected, and as he had told me in Chicago. But, continues the letter, we have bought a herd from Charles Ward of Goliad, on the San Antonio River, to be delivered at our Panhandle Ranch, and have secured you the job of bossing it. Now, should you wish to come back and work for us, go out and report to Mr. Ward at once. The next day I kissed Mother goodbye, gave Whiskey Pete a hug, patted Chief, a large white dog that I had picked up in the Indian Territory on my way through, a few farewell pats on the head, mounted Gotch, a pony I had swapped my star-spangled Winchester for, and struck out for Goliad, ninety miles west. Leaving Whiskey Pete behind was almost as severe on me as having sixteen jaw-teeth pulled. I left him in Horace Yeaman's care, so that I could come back by rail the coming fall. "'I failed to come back, though, that fall, as I expected, "'therefore never got to see the faithful animal again. "'He died the following spring. "'A three days' ride brought me to Goliad, "'the place where Fannin and his brave followers "'met their sad fate during the Mexican War. "'It was dark when I arrived there. "'After putting up my horse, "'I learned from the old gent Mr. Word, "'who was a saddler, "'and whom I found at work at his shop, "'that his son Charlie was out at Beeville "'gathering a bunch of cattle.' Next morning, I struck out for Beeville, thirty miles west, arriving there about four o'clock in the afternoon. About sundown, I found Charles Word and his crowd of muddy cow bunchers, five miles west of town. They were almost up to their ears in mud, it having been raining all day, trying to finish road branding that load of steers before dark. The corral having no shoot, the boys had to rope and wrestle with the wild brutes until the hot iron could be applied to their wet and muddy sides. When I rode up to the corral, Charlie came out, and I introduced myself. He shook my hand with a look of astonishment on his brow, as much to say, I'll be, if Beals mustn't be crazy, sending this smooth-faced kid here to take charge of a herd for me. He, finally after talking a while, told me that I would have to work under Mr. Stevens, until we got ready to put up the Beals herd, or at least the one I was to accompany. He also told me to keep the boys from knowing that I was going to boss the next herd, as several of them were fishing for the job. It might become stubborn, should they know the truth. I went on night guard after supper, and it continued to rain all night, so that I failed to get any sleep, but then I didn't mind it, as I was well rested. The next day after going to work was when I caught fits, though, working in a muddy pen all day. When night came, I didn't feel as much like going on guard as I did the night before. A laughable circumstance happened that morning after going into the branding pen. As the pen had no chute, we had to rope and tie down, while applying the brand. The men working in pairs, one, whichever happened to get a good chance, to catch the animal by both forefeet as he run by, which would bump him, that is, capsize him. The other fellow would then be ready to jump aboard and hold him until securely fastened. There being only seven of us to do the roping that morning, it of course left one man without a pard, and of course, that one was me. "'Each one you see is always anxious to get a good roper for a pard, "'as then everything works smoothly. "'Mr. Ward told me to sit on the fence and rest until Ike Ward, "'an old negro who used to belong to the Ward family, "'and who was the best roper in the crowd, "'returned from town where he had been sent with a message. "'It wasn't long till old Ike galloped up, wearing a broad grin. "'He was very anxious to get in the pen "'and show them fellers the art of catch them by both front feet, "'but when his boss told me he would have to take me for a pard, "'his broad grin vanished.' Calling Mr Word to one side he told him he didn't want that Yankee for a part, as he would have to do all the work to do all the work. He was told to try me one round, and if I didn't suit, he could take somebody else. Shortly afterwards, while passing Mr Word, old Ike whispered and said, Dog gun me if that Yankee don't surprise the natives. When night came, and while I was on herd, old Ike sat around the camp, wondering to the other boys, Where'd that Yankee learn to rope so well? You see, Mr Ward had told the boys that I was from the panhandle and Old Ike thought the panhandle was way up in him somewhere, hence he thinking I was a Yank. A few days after that, though, I satisfied Old Ike that I was a thoroughbred. Mr. Word bought a bunch of ponies, new arrivals from Mexico, and among them was a large iron gray, which the Mexicans had pointed out as being Mucho Diablo. None of the boys, even Old Ike, cared to tackle him. So one morning I caught and saddled him. He fought like a tiger while being saddled, and after getting it securely fastened, he threw it off and stamped it into a hundred pieces, with his front feet, which caused me to have to buy a new one the next day. I then borrowed Mr. Stevens' saddle, and after getting securely seated in it, raised the blinds and gave him the full benefit of spurs and quirt. After pitching about half a mile, me, saddle, and all went up in the air, the girths having broken, but having the hackamore rope fastened to my belt, I held him until help arrived. I then borrowed another saddle, and this time stayed with him. From that time on, old Ike recognized me as a genuine cowpuncher. We finally got that herd of thirty seven hundred steers ready for the trail, but the very night after getting them counted and ready to turn over to Mr. Stevens the next morning, they stampeded, half of them getting away and mixing up with thousands of other cattle. Mr. Stevens thought he would try a new scheme that trip up the trail, so he bought a lot of new bull's-eye lanterns to be used around the herd on dark, stormy nights, so that each man could tell just where the other was stationed by the reflection of his light. This night in question being very dark and stormy, Stevens thought he would christen his new lamps. He gave me one, although I protested against such nonsense. About ten o'clock, someone suddenly flashed his bullseye towards the herd, and off they went. As though shot out of a gun. In running my horse at full speed and trying to get to the lead, or in front of them, me, horse, bullseye, and all went over an old rail fence where there had once been a ranch, in a pile. I put the entire blame onto the lamp, the light of which had blinded my horse so that he didn't see the fence. It wasn't long in picking myself up and mounting my horse, who was standing close by, still trembling from the shock he'd received. I left the lamp where it lay swearing vengeance against the use of them, around cattle, and dashed off after the flying herd. When daylight came, I and a fellow by the name of Glass found ourselves with about half of the herd at least ten miles from camp. The rest of the herd was scattered all over the country, badly mixed up with other cattle. It took us several days to get the lost ones gathered, and the herd in shape again. After bidding Stevens and the boys who were to accompany him adieu, To meet again on Red River, where he was to wait for us, we pulled for Goliath to rig up a new outfit, horses, wagon, and everything else we needed. The horses Ward bought out of a Mexican herd which had just arrived from old Mexico. He gave eighteen dollars a head for the choice, out of several hundred head. Being all ready to start for Kimball County, two hundred miles northwest, where the herd was to be gathered, Mr. Ward turned the outfit over to me, while he went around by stage. Thanks for joining us today for 1001 Stories from the Old West and these two, actually three, great chapters from Charlie Seringo. There'll be more in the future. He had a lot of stories to tell. If you're enjoying 1001 Stories from the Old West, please do stop and send us a review. We just got started and reviews are very, very important to us. Also, please share our show with a friend. We appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.